It is the early 2nd century CE, and China is in the midst of one of the bloodiest periods in its history, the War of the Three Kingdoms. General Zhuge Liang and a small number of soldiers and officials are resting in a small town when his sentinels arrive with the terrifying news that his rival Sima Yi is leading an army of 150,000 soldiers to take the town. But as his men feel the terror of a certain death and the town dwellers grab as little as they can and ran, women and children screaming, Zhuge Liang calmly orders everyone to hide. He changes into a Taoist robe and climbs onto the highest and most visible part of the walled gate entrance. He lights some incense and begins to play the flute. When Sima Yi's army arrives, they're amazed to recognize the celebrated military leader waiting for them, vulnerable and alone. But Sima Yi knows of Zhuge Liang's reputation as a sleeping dragon, a tactician of fierce intelligence and caution. He orders his army to turn around, wrongly assuming that this apparently abandoned town is in fact a trap. Zhuge Liang's tactic is now immortalized as a classic example of the empty fort stratagem, one of the most famous in military history. But this story almost certainly never happened. It's an episode from The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, a historical novel written a thousand years later and widely regarded as one of the greatest masterpieces of world literature. Even today, the story exemplifies one of the most powerful assets in the arsenal of any leader, their reputation. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a new podcast brought to you by the PICTA Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Today's episode explores the art of leadership. Machiavelli famously said that it was better for a ruler to be feared than loved. Was he right? Or can compassionate leadership, founded on kindness and respect for one's peers, still produce powerful results? To decide, we'll hear from David Marquet, a top graduate of U.S. Naval Academy who commanded the nuclear-powered fast-attack submarine USS Santa Fe from 1999 to 2001, transforming it from the worst-performing submarine in its fleet to the best. Viv Groskop, a writer, stand-up comedian, and TV and radio presenter whose podcast, How to Own the Room, features inspirational female leaders from around the globe. And finally, we have Pikta Asset Management's Head of Total Return Equities, Doc Horn. David, Viv, Doc, welcome to Founding Conversation. You're all experts in leadership and leaders in your own right. So I'm sure we'll be discussing leadership in all of its shapes and forms today. But let's start with David. Do you think we can define good leadership? Ha. Huh. So when I went to the United States Naval Academy, which is a school in Annapolis, Maryland, that prides itself on creating leaders, uh, the book they gave me said leadership can be defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and actions, not plans and actions, thoughts, plans, and actions of others so as to obtain their obedience and their compliance. 
And I believed it. And I've now shed that, <laughs> thankfully. And I think leadership is more about creating an environment for people so that they can be awesome, key, just the way they are. Can you measure good leadership? Oh, for sure. There's many measures. Uh, the health of the people, the promotion aspects of your people. Leadership is always measured in what the people around you do. What you do is called achievement or accomplishment. But when you change it to leadership, it's measured in what the people around you, what your team achieves. Well, you essentially tore up the rule book of an institution that prides itself on educating future leaders. Why and how did you do that? Desperation, fear, and panic, basically. So I was so good at that, at that first definition, telling people what to do, having the right answers, making decisions, making it happen. Oh, Marque, he makes it happen. Uh, that they kept promoting me. And they said, oh, you're going to be a submarine commander, which was my dream. And for a year, I trained to go to one ship. And all of a sudden, no, 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 you're going to go to the Santa Fe, which was the worst performing ship in the fleet with the worst morale. And the reason I was going there was because the captain had quit. Now, the kicker was the Santa Fe was a different kind of submarine. So I go down on the ship. It's like Alice in Wonderland. I'm looking around. I don't recognize the equipment. But of course, I can't admit that. And part of me was like, oh, I can deal with this. I've dealt with bad morale and bad performance. But it was always from a place of knowing. So I come down. The patterns, our habits are so wired. And so I'm giving orders and the crew's following them. They wanted it. It wasn't hubris. It was just habit. And then I gave an order very quickly. Couldn't be done. I had two weeks to take over. This happened in two weeks. And my head went and I realized the problem wasn't I gave a bad order. That's what I'd always thought before. But the problem was I was the one giving orders. And so I got the team together. My instinct was, oh, you be proactive. You take initiative. You speak up if I give a bad order. I mean, come on, for crying out loud. But this is, this, what, what's the key word there? You. You need to change your behavior. I'm fine. Nothing going on here. And uh, finally kind of got, I had a young officer who reflected it back to me. And, and I was like, you know what? You're right. I need to be quiet and stop telling you guys what to do so that you guys can tell me what you intend to do. And we use this magic word intent. Just don't tell me what you want permission to do. Tell me what you intend to do. And the key is, if I don't say no, the answer is yes. And we stumbled and we fumbled and we screwed it up. And I went back to the old habits. And if I was, didn't sleep well that night, I, I would I'd come out loaded for bear for my team. But we had this vision and it, it worked and it cascaded down the ship. And what I like to say is we went from 135 followers and one leader, the captain, to 135 leaders. None of those 135 thinking, proactive biased for action individuals. And it was magic. David, do you know what impact your thinking and your philosophy that you're expanding here has had on the US Navy long term? Because I can see that in your world and in your experience, it had an incredible immediate impact. And I, I love everything that you have to say. I think it's I love your books. I think it's incredibly transferable. And I'm wondering whether that kind of thinking can actually shake up a really conservative institution long-term. Huh. So he here's what I know. Ten of my officers over the next ten years became submarine commanders. 
and they carried the virus with them. And if you go on any submarine... You created a good infection. Well done. Here's the thing. There's this link to health, which we don't... I didn't appreciate for a long time. It's obvious when you're a doctor, you, you take a Hippocratic oath, there's this ethics that's sort of embedded in the profession. But in leadership, we kill people with bad decisions that will certify the 737 MAX software or whatever, a long list of things. But we kill people slowly. So uh, there was a lady out in uh, Washington State. She's an operations manager for McDonald's. She runs around. She used to run around all day. Oh, you, what are you doing? How are you doing? No, don't do it. Do this. It's just traditional. Tell people what to do. And then she had to go back and check. And the franchise had about 15 stores. She was exhausted. She was overweight. She was pre-diabetic. She couldn't play with her kids. She was too tired. So he said, flip the whole thing. So I said, well, look, you lean back. Have the store managers text you. Here's what I see. Here's what I think. Here's what I'm doing. Come by for coffee. Let's chat. Invite, I'm inviting you to give feedback on my idea. But even if you don't show up, we're doing it. I'm not waiting for you. Everything changed. Over the next 365 days, she lost 50 pounds, lost the pre-diabetic markers, more fun playing with her kids. And this is, this is like the slow death that we're, the price we're paying. The cost of this, of just people leaving, is $223 billion dollars. Uh, to U.S. businesses over the last five years, let alone the health costs. There's a Stanford study that says health, uh, toxic workplaces in the U.S., the number five cause of death. So what we need is to lighten it up. And I'd love to, I'm interested in how your perspectives are, how, like how do we inject comedy into something that's maybe serious like this? Yeah, well, it's so interesting for me because obviously I haven't worked in a corporation for over 25 years. I'm an independent, I'm a creative, I'm a freelancer, I'm an entertainer, I'm, I'm a law unto myself in, in the way that I work and I'm only answerable to me. And I've had to learn self-leadership and how to lead in the way of crowd control that's the leadership I would know the best is how to control a crowd of people in a stand-up comedy scenario or a hosting scenario or something like that but it's so fascinating to me that what you talk about as the leader in a sort of quasi-military context is so transferable because everything is about holding your ego in check and figuring out what other people around you need and a lot of the stuff that I talk about in relation to my podcast, How to Own the Room, and my new book, Lift As You Climb, is all about taking the focus off yourself and where you're thinking, oh, I'm in charge, I have to make everything work. Oh, I can't do this, I feel nervous, this is never going to work. The way that people feel in a performance scenario, the reason people are very nervous often about public speaking, to take that focus away from the self, look at everyone else and think, well, what do they need? What can I bring to them? And almost have that, sometimes I call it for some people, like a maternal energy or a parental energy of how can I look after people? You know, what caring do these people need? And it's just fascinating for me that you brought that kind of energy into a submarine. And it's fascinating to me that, yeah, I think there is a crisis at the moment in terms of how we think about leadership and this whole uh, incredible 
transformation that we're having to make from the industrial age where things were a certain way to 150 years on where the rate of expansion, especially digitally, is so fast that we can't adhere to these old rules of command and control. And yet we don't really know what these new leadership paradigms might look like, especially in terms of diversity and inclusion and all, all the other things that are changing so fast. And in, I think I see some people in some jobs and some industries clinging on to those old models for dear life because they think, well, at least if we know who's in charge, they can tell us what to do. And actually, it's exactly that way of thinking that's going to make things worse. So what I try to do in my work is try to bring the freedom of risk and experimentation that is appropriate in the world that I work in. And I try to persuade people to find a small way to bring that into their world, because obviously you can't get up at your Q4 marketing meeting and say, hey, guys, I've prepared this as a stand-up show. Well, you could. Maybe it, you would do very well. Or yeah. probably, you probably couldn't do that in a submarine. People would want to to throw things at you. Um, but try and bring some lightness. Like you say, I love what you said about lightness. It's treating all of this with a feeling of humanity and that we're all in this, you know, to coin a phrase, we're all in this together. You know, we all have to get through this somehow. Uh, how do we make this easier for each other? Doc, as Picked Asset Management's head of total return equities, leading your own team in a financial setting, what's your take on all of this? I just wanted to pick up on a thread that, that both of you touched on, and I'd be interested in exploring it a little bit deeper. Um, you mentioned the, this, this idea of self-preservation and uh, a reluctance to take risk from individuals that you coach and, and that you speak with. And, you know, Dave, for you as well, for those who have worked for you, how do you encourage or step away from making decisions for others and encourage them to, to stick their neck out a little bit? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's more prevalent than ever in the corporate world today because everybody wants to keep their job. Everyone wants to pass risk up the ladder to somebody else and not be responsible for a failure. Um, and oftentimes it leads to a, a highly risk adverse culture where there's no moonshots. And if you don't have moonshots, you know, business is going to, to atrophy over time. And, you know, I think it's important to find a way to encourage others to take risk. But I don't know the best way of doing that. And I'd be curious your thoughts, Viv, maybe yeah, how I, you coach yeah, it. Yeah, I think there's a real impasse in our way of thinking at the moment because of a lot of the changes that are going on. And I see it in particular because I work with a lot of women and a lot of the work that I do is around empowering women to speak up more, take up more space, take the risk of being seen as being too loud or uh, overstepping the mark just to try and find out where that boundary is. And there are so many changes going on in terms of what we think leadership looks like and what kind of person looks like a leader and how exactly do they behave, how many risks do they take. If you talk to women over 50, then they're very used to this old, old model of you must mark yourself out as this kind of leader. Here's what you do to get taken seriously. Uh, I did an interview recently with Alini Santos from Unilever, who's their vice president of marketing, who talked about um, in the early 90s wearing 
glasses to work, although she didn't need to wear glasses, so that she would be taken seriously by men, wearing a man's suit with with actual men's shoulder pads, so she would be taken seriously, wearing aftershave, so she didn't distract her male colleagues with her fragrance. And women of us who are a bit older and who've been around through the 80s, 90s, they will tell you these stories of being the only person in the boardroom of their gender and trying to match up to this mythical leader idea. If you talk to women under 35 about this, they are horrified and they want this model to fit around them. They don't want to have to change to be a certain kind of person. And then you have people like me who are kind of in the middle and can see it from both sides. And I think there's a huge gap between the model that David is talking about, where we empower everybody to do things in their own image and we embrace the idea that we might not know what leadership looks like until we see it, and the old idea of we only trust leaders if they look a certain way and they speak a certain way. And we see this playing out in politics all of the time, that push and pull between leaders who are really unusual and leaders who fit almost like quite an old-fashioned, really in a box mold of this is what a leader looks like. So, Doc, uh, I grapple with that problem a lot. And there's a study where they had these baby mice and they had two tunnels to go down, and one was an interesting tunnel, but it had a scary sign on the front, and the other was a boring tunnel with a safe sign. And when the mother was not present, the mice tended to go down the safe tunnel, but when the mother was present, they tended to go down the interesting but scary tunnel. It's all about safety. We have to feel safe in order to risk. And I had this so wrong for so long. I thought we provoked people. I thought we stressed them because the model was, oh, if the saber-toothed tiger is roaring at you, you're going to run. But that's just a simple physical reaction. It's not in defense. It's not being creative. So if we say we're going to make this, uh, so I was out at Twickenham with the rugby guys the other day, and none of the games matter except for the finals. But there's this heaviness that they got to perform every time. So it dampens down their ability to run experiments and play, do different kinds of combinations of players. So if we say, okay, we're going to try something, we're not going to try it forever. It's not, gonna, it's not an initiative that we're going to do. It's an experiment that we're going to try, and there's an expiration date, and it's three months. What this does is it puts the whole, everyone in the organization into a seeking learning mode. Because now we say, okay, I think this is a daft idea. But three months from now, I'm going to have this big notebook of all the ways that Doc has screwed up this program so I can tell. And that's exactly what you want. But you don't want to be tweaking it every two weeks. That's not enough. You don't have enough data. So we stabilize the process, run the process. And this, this, is, this is what leadership needs to decide, is how long do we let the process run? Is it a year? Is it a day? It depends on, on the frequency of the... If it's transactions in a retail store and you're doing 4,000 transactions a day, maybe you can change, maybe you have enough data in one day. If you're playing rugby and you're only playing one game a week, maybe you need to go two or three games. During the COVID crisis, it's often been said that female leaders have been more compassionate than their male counterparts. But being a woman might not always imply an empathic leadership approach. One of Time Magazine's Women of the Year, Indra Gandhi, 
is the second longest serving Prime Minister of India, after her father Jawaharlal Nehru, and thus far the only woman to hold that title. Nehru devoted his life to freeing the country from imperial rule and building an independent liberal democracy. For a while, his daughter seemed to be continuing his legacy. But before long, she began to use her powers to crush dissidents, censor the press, and suspend civil liberties. Ushering in a state of emergency that ran over the nation's democratic constitution. In 1980, she was assassinated by her own bodyguards. So is there room for empathy in good leadership? Because everything that you have said is is underlining the importance of empathy, uh, right down from making sure that the mummy mouse is present at the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> near the scary tunnel. I think that uh, there are some words that are coalescing around the leadership conversation at the moment. Empathy is one of them. Authenticity is another. Charisma is another. And these things are slightly in the eye of the beholder because for some people, empathy might be a little bit like having somebody breathing down your neck. So I think we need to define more what exactly we mean by empathy. And I think sometimes when we talk about it, what we mean is we don't want the opposite of it, which is someone telling us what to do and not thinking about our feelings. And that's not empathy. That's a sort of resistance towards authority, um, which I think is, is a healthy thing. And I feel as if um, David would probably agree with that. But I don't, I'm kind of thinking, you know, where does empathy fit in in the, in the submarine world? Leadership is love. If you don't think leadership is love, you're not a leader. Leadership is love like parenting is love. And I use a, a definition from M. Scott Peck of what love is. Love is extending yourself for the emotional growth of another person. It's an action. It's not a feeling. It's doing something. It's getting in the pool and playing with your kids, not sitting in the lounge chair reading the newspaper. That's love. I agree with you, but why are most why do most leaders and many CEOs rate so highly on the psychopath test? In that case, many, traditionally, many people who are drawn to leadership are not drawn out of love. They're or they're perhaps drawn out of self love, um, but they're definitely not. It's the paradigm is is the opposite of this. I mean, in abstract terms, you're absolutely right. But I wonder why we're so resistant to these kind of leaders who would actually be useful to us and would cultivate something in us. Yeah, I think we have some ancient wiring. I, I'm not an expert in this. I haven't done any research on it, but the little that I've read, we have ancient wiring that makes those people attractive because we want someone who will rush towards the other male gorilla from the other tribe quickly, which is ideally what those people will do. But Rarely do we encounter that today. So I, I, I don't know how that, that happens. We, we also have a short, we have an overly short-term bias, which tends to reward short-term performance over long-term. And the, the problem with leadership is I kill people slowly. So I don't find out until 30 years from now that heart disease is higher in a certain plant because a certain person was the foreman there for 20 years. And by then that time, it's too late. So you just have to believe that treating people like humans is better for them. Doc, how does this translate in the corporate world? How does working for an organization that takes such a long-term view affect leadership and decision-making? I think much of what our organization 
prides itself on uh, and what I spend a lot of time uh, of my own focused on is trying to find the best talent that exists out there and have them join an organization with a very specific, unique culture. We're very different than a lot of financial institutions today. Uh, the history that we have, the long-term thinking that we have as a culture is incredibly unique and I think uh, quite different. And trying to get people to join us that buy into to that approach is not just run-of-the-mill talent that you find every day. One of the more fascinating things that I found from David, your book, was taking on the USS Santa Fe with 135 to 140 men, given the mandate to replace anybody that you wanted on there, and you let go of nobody, but you completely transformed the culture of the ship. To do that, I think, is A, impressive, but B, very few individuals would opt not to completely rip apart an organization with a mandate or an allowance to do so and rebuild it from the ground up. And I would love to kind of get your thoughts on on how you, obviously you've written the entire book on how you've done it, but from a from a cultural standpoint, when puzzle pieces don't fit neatly into what you plan to assemble, how do you rework it such that it, uh, the result is the, is the desired one? So Google did a study. What's the most effective determinant of team performance? It's called Project Aristotle. It's been published. The most effective determinant of team performance is how the team interacts, i.e., what words do they say to each other? Who's on? The, we all know all stars team, all all star teams, which have collapsed in utter um, <laughs> embarrassment. So, what I see is I had a benefit. I couldn't control who came to the ship, so I didn't spend any of my energy on that. You need to, but you also need to spend energy on how the team interacts. I just focused all my energy on how they interact. And now Google hadn't come out with this, so I was just being. I was just. Lucky. I'm not saying never fire people. You may, and I was getting close to firing uh, a guy, but fortunately quit before I had to. But I, I had a specific reason not to fire anybody. When I came into the ship, the morale was so low. They had been told that they were all screwed up for so long. I wanted to send the signal that it wasn't them, that they were okay, and that it was just the way we behave toward each other. And if I had fired just one guy, it would have destroyed that message. And I would say that. I'd say, you guys aren't as bad as you think you are. And I believe in you. And I couldn't say, well, I believe in most of you. It just it wasn't going to work. My question for you is when you're talking to these uh, prospective candidates, like what are the questions you ask? What markers and precursors do you look for in terms of is this the kind of person that we're looking for? I was handed, effectively, a much larger submarine than what I was, I was operating at the time, a much larger team, but one where half of the individuals on that team had just departed. Ah. And massive turnover. However, the assets were still there. The ship was effectively still intact, and I was asked to rebuild it. And the approach that I took at the time was one that I regret now, which was cutting a lot of corners in the process 
and aggressively trying to hire as many individuals as I could to effectively fill seats rather than bring in the best individuals for the role. And so we were very quick to hire in portfolio managers and build out teams to, to, to reestablish our, our, our presence and hold on to the assets. However, our performance suffered greatly over the next couple of years because we had a, a team of, of probably B and C talent when we didn't uh, incorporate our full process and really be thorough in the vetting in order to bring in the A's and B's. And I think that, that... I really hope the B's and C's are not listening to this. <laughs> we haven't talked about the name of the organization. Or... You know who you are, B's and C's. You know it. Uh, but no, I, I, I think that one of the things that this organization does a, a very good job at, given 200 years of history, is to really be thorough in its process and cut no corners. It takes much longer. But I think the quality of the teams that we end up with uh, have been substantially better. And I think it's one of the key lessons that I've learned in my, uh, my career so far. Cyrus the Great unified the Achaemenian Empire around 500 BC. But unlike most of the conquerors we see throughout history, he was nicknamed the father of the people by ancient Persians because he respected, learned from, and encouraged the people and culture of the lands that he conquered, sometimes going as far as sacrificing to the local deities himself. Machiavelli's The Prince argues that successful politicians cannot be kind. Yet, there have been many powerful leaders who, like Cyrus the Great, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, have used moral rectitude to lead inspiring hundreds of thousands of loyal followers because of their empathy and compassion. What are some of the mistakes any of you have observed and even the most experienced of leaders? I think one of the, the key characteristics of less effective leaders that I've seen are a mentality that favors themselves over the team. Oftentimes, transparent decisions that flatter themselves, potentially at the cost of, of greatness for others. It's a selfishness. I think oftentimes it's poor communication as well uh, and, and not wanting to express why they've made decisions to their teams for fear that they'd be challenged. And oftentimes, you, you know, you, being a leader, you have to be vulnerable. You, you do have to oftentimes say, I don't know, but also be willing to be wrong at times uh, and accept that when your team challenges you, David, when you told your second in command to reverse the submarine when you meant to, to, to say accelerate and you could have ended up on the beach if he'd followed you, to acknowledge when you've made mistakes and learn from those. And so um, those are a couple of the negative characteristics that, I, that, that I've seen in, in my career. Yeah, absolutely. The patterns we see, I, I like to characterize it as good people trying to do good things but using typically the wrong playbook. It's 99.999%. It's not evil people. So, for example, Doc, you talked about transparency. If you feel the urge to say, trust me, that means you sense they're not trusting you. 
saying trust me, no one ever trusted anyone because they said trust me. The, the, the formula for trust is transparency over time. Repeatedly saying things like, so here's what I think. I'm like 80% sure about this, but I want to try it for, and then let's see what happens. Or what keeps me up at night, or what I'm worried about about this situation. When someone comes to you and says, uh, so here's my plan for, the, for this, there's two ways you can respond. You can say, oh, I don't like that plan, which is a judgment. Of, uh, or you could say, that plan makes me nervous, which is more of a self-awareness observation of, your, of how you feel about the plan. And I have to tell you, we referred to ourselves as steely-eyed killers of the deep. And we were. You don't want to go to war against us. We're going to put you down. But in the moment, I'm talking to my team about vulnerability. I had to create sentence starters to talk in the language of ambiguity and vulnerability. One of the things we see leaders do is there's a rush to avoid uncertainty. Anytime it's uncertain, uh, so, for example, in a meeting, well, let's just, how are we doing? Everyone's looking around. I judge the body language. Oh, we all seem to be leaning towards releasing the product on time. And the person who thinks in a different direction gets, we're just making it harder for that person. Then we say, oh, speak up, last chance. And then we ask binary questions. Are we good here? Self-affirming binary questions. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and, and it just invites head nodding, mindless head nodding. What you want to do is invite disproof. What am I missing? How could this be wrong? What was unclear in, in, in this last conversation? If you happen to be in a mode where you are maybe conveying something to the team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like I should go and join the U.S. Navy now. As long as I can work under one of your officers, yeah. I would be fine, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, this is why you yeah, hear. Yeah, I would just. I would get very, very sick very quickly. I think underneath the water, having to take orders. Although obviously, I could be a leader myself, so that would be great. But I hear this all the time from people in organisations that the way that they are expected to work doesn't match up with the way they want to live and meeting culture is a huge part of this that many people in exactly these meetings you described David they don't feel that their opinion is genuinely being solicited or that anybody really cares what they think or that they can make a difference the meeting is happening because well we always have a meeting on a Monday and and the meeting is where this person showboats and the, the purpose of the meeting is so that the CEO can later say hey you were at the meeting exactly it's not, we all know the decision has yeah. been made right yeah and a thing I often say to people in performance context is this is happening this is actually happening like everybody's looking at you and everybody's expecting you to speak so own it like be here be present and that's what's happening in meetings all the time like as soon as you turn up and you're in a room with other people and well we're here we better actually do something but for some reason this artificial and I wonder if it is because of this language lag that you're talking about this this artificial game of this is what we do when we go to work and nothing meaningful actually occurs and we're scared of meaningful moments and responsibility and yet when we do take on those moments those are the times when something interesting happens when we connect with each other and when we all show true leadership I want to do a double thump on that with the meetings, which is we analyze double thump back double at thump, you, David. We we analyze the language in several teams. These uh, we look, we're looking at particular teams that had negative outcomes, and 
there's a pattern that emerges. If you count the words that each person says, the percentage of words say follows exactly the salary that the, pe- <laughs> that the people have. Oh my it God, follows, I love that. It follows the hierarchy. Yeah. And so word, word inequality is a proxy for power inequality. So we know that inflammation has a hard time flowing up against the power gradient. So what you want to do in a meeting is level just you don't need math and recorders to do it just think okay has someone been quiet and invite them to speak you want to even you want to level the share of voice among the team members and if you do that you'll get everyone's voice out there and you'll be more likely not to miss a blind spot most teams make decisions based on the information that is most commonly shared among people, not the most relevant, accurate, or precise, or useful information. Mm, yeah, well, gender really plays into this as well, because I think that sometimes, and I'm thinking probably from like 10 or 20 years ago, women were thinking, I need to get my voice more heard in meetings. I need to get my word count up to fight with these people at a higher salary who've got the big word count that matches their salary. Whereas now, I feel as if more people are embracing this idea of actually everybody needs to be heard. This isn't about, um, you know, the, was it a gorilla that you said, David, like being, everybody's going to try and be the gorilla. Race to race to gorilladom. Yeah. Um, people are realizing that that doesn't really benefit everybody and that it's not a zero-sum game and everybody needs to be heard and how do we create that culture? And it does mean that the people with the big salary who've got the high word count, who are big gorillas, they are going to have to wise up pretty fast. To me, the question is, are you a decision maker or are you making a decision-making factory? And since I think leadership is about other people... Leadership means building a decision-making factory where if the team executes a process. So, for example, in a meeting, where are people's eyes? Are they always on the senior person? Or does the team team talk to each other? This is one of the things we look at when we put the team together. And simple things like that. So if we create the right factory, the correct decisions will come up. And I don't need to micromanage the decisions. I can let go of the decisions. Too many leaders are lazy and they haven't created the factory and they are addicted to the psychological high of there's a long line of people wanting to see me all day long so I can pontificate on these decisions and hear my voice versus let the team. And then we say, oh, we all did it together. But we all know that's crap. (laughs) We were just extensions of your will. And we see this with... um, when, when founders start companies, it's just one person, and they are the decision maker. But then they're successful, and then there's 10, and there's 100, and now there's 1,000. And uh, we've had some nice blow-ups out in Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, but uh, at some point, getting those 1,000 people to express 2% more of their brain power is going to wipe out whatever you know, extra brain cells you have. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were David Marquet, Viv Groskop, and Doug Horn. This series is brought to you by the Bicta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lobrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, Please rate, review, and subscribe. 
wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.